please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 with me this morning. As you turn there, just a couple of things to talk about as a family this morning. Uh, First of all, I just want to echo Ben's invitation to you to come this evening to Bethany Baptist Church and participate in a joint uh, fellowship, a worship service. It's a great opportunity for us to fellowship with the congregations from Bethany Baptist Church and Living Hope Community Church, and I believe there will even be some sort of a deal afterwards, maybe food. I don't know. I can't guarantee that. If they don't, I think they have some pretty good pantries there at Bethany Baptist, and we can raid those. Um, so, but it'll be a good time of fellowship, uh, whatever the Lord has in store there. But also, uh, very excited to announce this morning a little bit more about our, our family meeting next week during Sunday school hour at 9 o'clock. We'll be coming into this room, sitting in the back there, and have our uh, one, of our, one of our business meetings, our family meetings, and talking about a couple things. We've already mentioned in the bulletin, I believe, that we'll be discussing our upcoming building plans, or at least a little bit about the timeline for deciding some things for our building plans, and so that's a good opportunity to come and ask some questions about that. But we'll also, I'm very excited to announce, be talking a little bit about our staffing plans. You may remember in April of this year, when we presented the budget to the congregation, we had in the budget the funds for hiring a fourth pastoral position, and we kind of talked a little bit about that and said we're going to continue to, uh, as, as elders, to kind of talk through what roles and responsibilities that next staff person may have, and so we've been doing that over the summer. We've had a review committee meet, and uh, next week we'll talk more about the process the elders went through and the work that a review committee did, but the long and the short of it is uh, next week we'll be announcing that we are proposing to the congregation hiring Kent Cloder as our associate pastor of biblical counseling. Now, some of you may be saying, I thought he already was on staff, and uh, that's just because he works so hard at the church. He's, he's actually been a missionary uh, staff person with the Bethany Fellowship of Churches, and we're proposing to our congregation, uh, we have the opportunity to bring him on to minister full-time at Bethany Community Church, and we believe as his ministry has grown and his importance to Bethany community has grown, that that's just a a very neat opportunity for our church to take advantage of. And so next week, we'll be presenting that, and you'll be having the opportunity to ask questions about some of the thinking that went into deciding on uh, what staff position to hire and what additional staff positions we believe we may need in the future. So we'll do that next week. And then uh, over the next month, we encourage you to ask questions of Uh, talk to Kent, talk to other elders, uh, talk to members of the review committee, and and get some of their input if you have suggestions or thoughts you would like us to think through. And then in December, on December 11th at 5 p.m. at Camp Good News, we'll hold a little, uh, Lord willing, a little Q&A with with Kent and and Janelle and have some some greeting time with them. And then that evening, have another family meeting where we, again, Lord willing, as a congregation, uh, officially affirm Kent as an associate staff person here at Bethany Community. So, really excited about that, and I hope that you're excited about that as well. Look forward to getting some, some thoughts from all of you as you, you think through this, uh, this time in the life of our church. Neat things going on, and I hope you're encouraged. So, I encourage everyone, you don't need to be a member, but everyone can attend our family meeting next Sunday during the Sunday school hour. Only members can, can vote to affirm things, but everyone is welcome to attend that and find out what's going on in the life of our church. Well, with those uh, wonderful things out of the way, let's uh, continue to worship God this morning. Please stand with me as uh, I read from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 4 through verse 12. Jesus says in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows." And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of God, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You may be seated. You may be encouraged through God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we are mindful this morning of our great need for your grace. We're mindful of the situations that are going on in the life of our church that can only be met by your hand. So Father, we pray for your gracious hand to be exhibited in the lives of the saints here at Bethany Community Church. We pray for those who do not know you, that you would extend your grace to them and their hearts would be transformed and they would respond in faith to the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, placing their trust in him alone for their salvation. And Father, we pray for those of us who are just in need of, of being pointed to your truth and encouraged in your truth. Please help us. Help us to be able to receive that and be submissive to your will. And Father, this morning as we, we talk about some, some very deep truths in your word, I just pray for clarity. I pray that you would help me to communicate these, these important truths clearly, and I pray that you would help our hearts to receive them as your truth. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, several weeks ago, we began looking at verses 1 through 12 of Luke chapter 12. And as we begin looking at verses 1 through 12, what we saw is that Jesus is dealing with something called fear of man. A fear of man refers to the fear that I have of what other people are going to say about me or do to me or, or think about me. And that fear of man manifests itself in my life when I'm, I'm influenced, I'm, I'm motivated by what other people are going to think or say or do to me. So, for example, I may uh, know that God calls me to do one thing, and then as I think about what will happen to me as I do that, how other people will respond to me as I am obedient to God, it causes me to fear that and to do something different. That's fear of man. And all of us, to one degree or another, are affected by fear of man. For example, some of us may be younger people, and we may uh, go to a friend's house, and as we're there with our friends, and the, someone puts on a movie, and as we see this movie come on the, the television screen, we realize, look, that's not something that God would have me watch or think about or, or view. And instead of acknowledging that and turning our eyes from that, we're afraid of what our peers will say about us or think about us or do to us, and so we don't turn away from the screen. Or we get older and we know how God may want us to act or behave at work, and we're afraid of what our coworkers may say if we take certain stances on things. We don't want to be considered those weird Christian people or that strange evangelical cult. And so we're afraid of how other people are going to view us, what they're going to think about us, what they're going to say to us, and so we fail to act as God would have us to act. Or we desire the approval of other people, and that approval we desire so much we are unwilling to do what God has called us to do. That is fear of man. And what we've seen as we looked at verses 1 through 12, kind of the main idea I've asked you to consider, is that fear of man can only exist where fear of God is weak. It is only possible for us to fear man if our fear of God is weak. When I'm thinking about people, when I'm thinking about their ability to do things to me, when I'm thinking about my family and, and fearing, lacking their approval, where fear of man exists, that means that my fear of God is weak. Conversely, when my fear of God is strong, my fear of man is diminished. When I am contemplating God and his authority and his majesty and his splendor and his awesome authority, his sovereign authority over every detail of my life, not just my physical life, but my very soul, when that is front and foremost in my mind and in my heart and my thoughts, then fear of man disappears. 
we first saw as we began looking at these verses in verses 1 through 3 that fear of man leads to hypocrisy. And then a few weeks ago, we began looking at verses 4 through 12, and we looked at the relationship between fear of man and a triune God. You see, in verses 4 through 12, as Jesus talks about fearing man and fearing God, he's not just talking about some abstract concept of God. He's not saying, look, there's some spirit in the sky, and you should probably be afraid of him, or there's some uh, abstract deity, and, and he's a guy you should be cautious about. Jesus is calling us to have a fear and a reverence and an awe for the one true God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And a few weeks ago, as we looked at this passage, began looking at verses 4 through 12, we we talked a little bit about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not an easy doctrine to understand, but I believe it is a vital doctrine to affirm. In fact, I would go as far to say that a person who denies the Trinity cannot be a Christian. A person who denies an orthodox biblical understanding of the Trinity cannot be a believer. You say, well, does that mean a person has to understand the Trinity? No, because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you feel like you totally understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you're probably a heretic as well. In fact, we were were talking in our our care group about uh, the the sermon. We were talking a little bit about the the doctrine of the Trinity, and I was asking some questions, and people were strangely silent. I said, boy, it seems kind of quiet tonight. And my friend said, we're afraid you're going to call us heretics, okay? Uh, So that's the the doctrine of the Trinity. Remember, we looked at... um, a statement that kind of helps us understand a biblical understanding of the Trinity. We saw this, the statement kind of consists of three parts. There is one God, there's one God, number two, who eternally exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. There's one God who eternally exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and each person is fully, completely God. In other words, God the Father isn't like one-third God, and God the Son isn't like a third God, and God the Holy Spirit isn't one-third God. They're all fully God and have all the attributes of God. That's why so many analogies that we try to use to describe the Trinity fall short. I mentioned a few weeks ago the example of of water. Sometimes people say, well, the Trinity is kind of like water. Um, There's Water is liquid, and water as a vapor, gas, and there's water as a solid, but, but each one of those is, is water. Well, that gets at an element of the Trinity, how something could be three in one, but it fails to rightly understand the biblical teaching of the Trinity because it's not like God is sometimes God the Father, and sometimes He's God the Son, and sometimes He's God the Holy Spirit, and when He's each of those gods, He has a different attribute. God the Father has all the attributes of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is fully God, just as God the Son, and it's not like they kind of change forms sometimes. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons, and each person is fully God. Now, how important is that doctrine? I would argue, based on what Jesus says here in verses 4 through 12, that one denies the doctrine of the Trinity at the peril of one's soul. This is an immensely important doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that we always understand it perfectly. It doesn't mean that we always articulate it perfectly. But the true believer, I'm going to argue based on what Jesus says this morning, the true believer affirms in their heart the doctrine of the Trinity, and the true believer would never deny the essential truths of the Trinity because of God's work within their heart. If you fail to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity or deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you're denying the attributes of the God you claim to be worshiping. It's kind of interesting. This past month, during the month of October, as I'm, I'm thinking about Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12 specifically, and Jesus is talking about how we respond to God as the triune God. As I was thinking about this, there's kind of this minor controversy that's erupted. There's a very prominent pastor in the Chicago area, and this, this pastor in the Chicago area has had these conferences where he invites different evangelical leaders from different denominations and backgrounds to come together and, and talk about tough, kind of controversial issues. And this prominent pastor in the Chicago area invited a pastor from the Dallas area 
named T.D. Jakes to come to his January conference. Now, uh, T.D. Jakes is a person who I believe doesn't affirm a biblical understanding of the Trinity. In fact, T.D. Jakes is part of, he's kind of nominally part of the prosperity gospel, but he also affirms an understanding of the Trinity where he denies that God, well, in the past he has denied that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are, are three persons in one God. He's kind of talked about uh, God manifests himself in different ways. So sometimes God manifests himself as God the Father, sometimes as God the Son, sometimes as God the Holy Spirit. That's heresy. And one affirms that doctrine at the peril of one's soul. Say, Daniel, maybe you're overreacting. No, I don't believe so, based on what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, uh, T.D. Jakes is an African-American pastor, and there's another African-American pastor named uh, Thabiti, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, uh, Any Abwal, and this is what he wrote as he considered this invitation that was given to T.D. Jakes, a prominent African-American pastor who affirms this wrong understanding of the Trinity. This is what he writes. He says, it's difficult to see uh, larger-than-life heretics given a platform in circles of pastors and leaders we respect and we regard as co-laborers in defense and confirmation of the truth. This kind of invitation undermines that long, hard battle many of us have been waging in a community often neglected by many of our peers. And because we've often been attempting to introduce African-American churches to the wider evangelical world as an alternative to the heresy and blasphemy so commonplace and so popular on television outlets, the invitation of T.D. Jakes to perform in our circles simply feels like a swift tug of the rug from beneath our feet and our efforts to bring health to a sick church. And I believe that he's absolutely right. The doctrine of the Trinity, affirming that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons and each person is fully God, is a doctrine that the true believer must respond to in faith and joy. Jesus here, as he calls us not to fear the displeasure of men, to not fear the disapproval of men, to not even fear the persecution of men, Jesus, as he calls us to that, doesn't just say, don't fear that, and instead fear this great spirit in the sky. Jesus is going to place God before our eyes in verses 4 through 12. And he's going to place each member of the Trinity before our eyes. And he's going to say, look, it is a terrible thing to come into conflict with any member of the Trinity. It is a terrible thing. One does it at danger of one's soul to respond wrongly to any member of the Trinity, any person of the Trinity. It is a serious deal. And as he points us to the majesty of a God who is three in one, the splendor of a God who can be one God, three persons, who can be God our Father, who can be God the Son, who can be God the Holy Spirit, as he presents that image to us of who God is, it should cause the heart of the believer to worship that God and say, yes, that is the God in whom I believe, that is the God whom I worship. And as we worship that God, what should happen? The fear of family, the fear of friends, the fear of peers, the fear of anything except God should be melted away in our souls. I've been really praying over this passage this week and struggling with this passage this week because there's so much here. And my prayer this morning as I, as I, as I got up and I said, Lord, I'm still not where I need to be in this passage and, and figuring out how to communicate it clearly. Does that kind of cause you a little bit of fear this morning? Uh, I said, Lord, I'm still not where I want to be. But God, this is such a beautiful passage. Please, please, please allow my lack of ability to not stand in the way of presenting who you are. And my goal is that you would look at this passage and see what Jesus says about how to relate to each member of the Trinity and your fear of God would be magnified, your reverence for God would be magnified, and your fear of man would be diminished. Let me remind you about what we talked about the first time as we looked at verses 4 through 12. We looked at, first of all, how we need to fear God the Father. Fear God the Father. Jesus says in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. 
fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so Jesus, first of all, talks about the authority, the sovereign authority, the role that God the Father has in our lives. He says, look, you're afraid sometimes of people who have the ability to do some bad things to you, but at some point their authority over you ends. Once a person has killed you, they have no more authority over you. However, there is a God who has the authority not just over your physical body, but over your very soul as well. And you, you see that, you read that, and that can cause you some right fear, some right reverence. But as you and I think about that sort of awesome power, our temptation is to believe that a person that has that much authority is going to abuse it, right? Imagine if you or I had the authority not just complete sovereign authority, not just over someone's very physical life, but their soul as well. How responsible do you think you'd be with that sort of power? Power corrupts in a human being, right? Imagine if I had that sort of power, you know, uh, sitting around the elder board, salary negotiations might be very different, right? Yeah, you guys, go ahead and select my salary. Just remember, um, I have the authority not over your body only, but your soul. Go ahead, whatever you guys think is fair, right? People corrupt power. Power in the hands of people is a very dangerous thing. But, but here's God the Father who has this awesome, total, complete authority over someone's physical life and their soul as well. And what does he do with it? He's gentle. He's mindful of the little things. He says, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered, are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God is more powerful than any being you can imagine, and God is more caring. This should cause us, we talked about a few weeks ago, to reject the frivolous worship of God that is so commonplace and instead come before a majestic God, exalt God the Father, understand his complete awesome authority, his complete love for us, and worship him accordingly. That's, re- that's fearing God the Father. The second thing that Jesus tells us in these verses, verse 8 and 9, is that you and I must confess Christ. Number two, you and I must confess Christ. How important is it to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Is it possible for a person to refuse to confess Christ, to refuse to respond to Jesus Christ as God the Son? Is it possible for a person to do that and still have a relationship with God? I would argue, absolutely not. It is not optional for one to respond rightly to God the Son. One must fear God the Son and respond to him through confession. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. That word acknowledge there means to confess or to declare. It's the idea of standing before a judge and and declaring something to be true. And Jesus says, look, the person who is going to confess or declare me before men, I'm going to confess and acknowledge before the angels of God. In other words, in God's presence, I will acknowledge that, that this person is mine. If they acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge them before God. We see the opposite in verse 9. The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. The person who denies that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior is going to be the person who is denied by Jesus in the presence of God. Those are hard words, right? You say, wait a minute. What about a person who just kind of like one time says something wrong about Jesus? What about Peter? Well, I think the example of Peter makes clear that what Jesus is talking about here is not just a a one-time denial of a certain truth about Jesus. In fact, the the word that he uses here for the one who denies me refers to like a continual denial. The person who refuses to acknowledge and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and who instead denies Jesus Christ over the course of their life is a person who will not be acknowledged by Jesus Christ in heaven. In other words, it's of vital importance for a person to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, to confess him as Lord, in order to have a right relationship with God. 
In fact, let me just kind of share three thoughts here about confession. Three thoughts about how confession is important. Because a person cannot have confidence of a right relationship with God apart from rightly responding to God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The first thing I just encourage you to think about as we think about confession, as we think about acknowledging, declaring Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, number one, just the very meaning of confession. Number one, confession means to declare and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. When I say that it's important for us to respond rightly to the second person of the Trinity to confess Christ, what I mean is you and I must believe and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. In fact, uh, keep your fingers there in Luke chapter 12 and turn over to the book of Romans. You have Luke, John, Acts, and then you have the book of Romans. You come to Romans chapter 3. I want to talk for a few minutes about some verses there in Romans chapter 3. Let me kind of set it up a little bit for you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, he talks about something that you and I desperately need something called God's righteousness. Many of you may be thinking about different things that you need through a course of a week. Whitney and I, this past week, we've been talking about making a a major purchase, and as we have talked about this major purchase, we've thought, you know, is this something we really need? And if it is something that we really need, how much money do we need to spend on it? Let's say we've saved X amount of dollars. Is it right to spend X amount of dollars, or should we spend less? And should we try to, to uh, use this money for some other purpose that God would... It's, it's kind of a, it's a hard thing to think through sometimes, right? As we think about how valuable something is and how God would have us spend our resources. This thing called righteousness, Paul tells us in Romans 1, 2, in the first part of Romans chapter 3, this thing called righteousness is of infinite value. There is no price that is too high to pay in order to obtain righteousness. And what's more distressing, not only is this the most valuable thing that a person could possibly hope to to possess, no one has it. (laughs) Paul tells us, The person who's never heard the name of God doesn't have God's righteousness. The person who is a a Jew by birth doesn't have God's righteousness. The person who's a moralist who says, I'm going to try to keep all of God's laws doesn't have God's righteousness. No one has God's righteousness, Paul tells us in the first part of the book of Romans. And then we come to Romans chapter 3 and we see how righteousness can be obtained. Look what it says, verse 21. Of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in who? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous, how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can one obtain this righteousness that one needs in order to respond rightly to God? One cannot obtain this righteousness through any other means, through any other means, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And confession means to believe and declare that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's the first thing to understand about confession. Secondly, confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior distinguishes believers from unbelievers. Confession distinguishes believers from unbelievers. In fact, uh, you don't need to turn there, but 1 John chapter 4 the, the disciple John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, that's the same word that Luke uses about 
Jesus uses to describe acknowledging him, same word, confession, every spirit that confesses or acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verse 6, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. A person who acknowledges, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior is distinguished from the unbeliever. The church throughout its history has understood this vital truth. A confessor is a believer. The non-confessor is not a believer. Second century, a man named Polycarp, 80-something years old, is brought into a Roman Colosseum. The magistrate, the Roman magistrate, presses him and says, Swear the oath, swear this oath, and I, I will release you, Polycarp. Revile Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty-six years have I been his servant, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king, my king who saved me? This magistrate, this Roman magistrate persists again and says, swear by Caesar if thou, and then Polycarp answers, he says, if you suppose, if you suppose that I will swear by Caesar as you say, and you pretend that you're ignorant of who I am, hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and allow me to teach you. They said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if thou despises the wild beast, unless thou repent. Polycarp answered, Thou threaten with fire that burns for a season after a while is quenched. You are ignorant of the fire of future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do to me what you will. Saying these things and more besides, the writer tells us, Polycarp was inspired with courage and joy, and his countenance was filled with grace that not only did it not drop in dismay the things which were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astounded. His own herald was to proclaim three times in the midst of the stadium, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. Polycarp understood the vital necessity of confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. And men and women throughout church history have paid with their lives the cost of confessing the Christ. Confession, confession distinguishes the true believer from the unbeliever. It is a serious thing to deny the second person of the Trinity. So confession means to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Confession distinguishes believers from unbelievers. Third thing to think about here regarding confession, third thing to think about is that confession is a necessary indication of salvation. Confession, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, is a necessary, is a necessary indication of salvation. Let me read one more passage from the book of Romans. Romans 10, verse 9. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In other words, a person who in their heart believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, the, the mouth is going to confess what the heart has believed. Confession, confession, declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior is a necessary indication that one's heart has truly believed. And a person who can deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a person who should be very much in fear of the health of one's soul. Jesus Christ, the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
is a mark of true belief. It's very easy to hold kind of vague conceptions of God and, and not suffer a lot of persecution. You see a coworker and you're talking to a coworker about a tough time, and yeah, well, uh, I hope you really trust in God. It's easy to say the word God in kind of this abstract sense. You pray a public prayer and, and uh, God, we pray for all these things, amen. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ, you narrow the field pretty quickly, don't you? <laughs> Suddenly, as you talk about God the Son, you're not talking about some abstract God. <laughs> as you talk about God the Son, as you talk about Jesus Christ, you're acknowledging that the God that you worship isn't some vague concept, some spirit in the sky. The God that you worship is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. That has never <laughs> That has never been a doctrine that has been easy to accept. Jesus, and I won't go to these passages now, but Jesus in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, Jesus runs into trouble with people. And, and why does he run into trouble? Because he declares himself to be one with God. The Jewish leaders are fine talking about God as, as, as a, just kind of a general God, but as Jesus Christ identifies himself with God, the Jewish leaders reveal that they do not worship the one true God. And Jesus says, look, you may know a lot about the about the scriptures, the old, what we would call the Old Testament. You may know a lot of truths about the Old Testament, but this is what Jesus says in John 8. He says, but you're not of Abraham. Your father's the devil. As Jesus tells us not to fear men, but to fear God, he says we need to fear God the Father, and he says you need to confess me. It is vitally important for you to understand that, that I am God and you must confess me as, as Lord and Savior. Confess the Christ. Confession of Christ makes people uncomfortable. But if you are going to rightly respond to the triune God, you must confess Christ. So, fear God the Father. Secondly, confess Christ. Number three, we must submit to the Holy Spirit Submit to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. He says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is a, a very important passage for us as we think about rightly relating to God, because very often I think we have just kind of a, a cursory understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. We kind of understand God the Father, and we understand God the Son. We know a lot of stories about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, especially in, in kind of churches that tend to uh, not focus as much on the spiritual gifts, or maybe you wouldn't consider more charismatic, the Holy Spirit is, is someone whom we're kind of uncomfortable with sometimes. In fact, sometimes we don't even refer to him as a, a person. The Holy Spirit is it, you know. The, the Holy Spirit, it dwells within us. Well, really? Who is the Holy Spirit? He's not some, some abstract concept either. He's not some, some uh, spiritual force. He's not like some fill, thing that fills you like a Jedi or something. The Holy Spirit, who is he? Let me just share a couple thoughts with you about who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, just... Um, is uh, five things real quickly about the Holy Spirit. Number one, it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit is God, right? He has the same titles that God has. He has the thoughts of God. We see that the thoughts of God in 1 Corinthians 2.11. He has the same attributes of God. He's eternal. We see that in Hebrews 9.14. He's holy. He's the creator. He wrote scripture. So number one, the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. Secondly, secondly, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. He has an intellect. First Corinthians 1 tells us about how he searches out to, to know things. He has emotions. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. He has a will. In Acts 16, 6, Paul talks about what the will of God, what the will of the Spirit was, how he directed him. So, the Holy Spirit is God, number one. He's a person, number two. Number three, the Holy Spirit's work is essential 
in saving us. The Holy Spirit works to save us. How does He do it? He regenerates us. John 3, John 3, 8 talks about the Holy Spirit regenerating us. He baptizes us into a union with Christ, 2 Corinthians 12, 13. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's a person. His work is essential in saving us. Number four, the Holy Spirit's work is essential in sanctifying us, making us more like God. He indwells us. He helps us in our walk. Romans 8, 11 says, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so, the Holy Spirit is, a, is God. He's a person. He, his work is essential to save us, to bring us into relationship with God, allowing us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, regenerating us, giving us new life. And then, the Holy Spirit's work is essential in sanctifying us, making us continue to, to walk the Christian walk. He indwells us. He gives us, continues to give us new life. He allows us to understand God's Word. And finally, a fifth thing to think about as we think about who the Holy Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit is one whose work is essential for the health of Christ's church. So we think about our church, we know it's the Holy Spirit who works within this church to give each person in here who's a believer spiritual gifts in order to be able to use those spiritual gifts to encourage the body to lift us up. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, how important is it to relate rightly to the Holy Spirit? Here in verse 10, we have an indication of how important it is, right? Here in verse 10, we have what some people have called the, the unforgivable sin. And what does Jesus say here in verse 10? He says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is God the Son, is going to be forgiven. But here's this unforgivable sin, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to turn over to that passage real quickly. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 31, we're going to look at some earlier verses in just a second, but in verse 31, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will for be forgiven people, but the blasphemy, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Speaking against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Is that scary? <laughs> is the idea that you could commit a sin that is so offensive that it could never be forgiven, is that a pretty big deal? Yeah. And the idea that you and I would be more afraid of people than of transgressing against the Holy Spirit is extremely foolish. And what it causes us to realize is, as I, as I fear man, I don't understand God. I don't understand the real stakes of life and of eternity. There's a sin that a person can commit that can never be forgiven. Now, what is it? The good news, I believe, is that if a person is worried about committing the sin, they haven't committed it. Whitney and I, whenever we were in uh, Dallas, there was this uh, really, really uh, sweet little little kid who was in our, our ministry and uh, in the youth ministry, and he was uh, he was a very timid soul. He was afraid of a, a lot of different things. I think one time he. He came up to Whitney, and he goes, uh, Whitney, uh, you're a biology major, right? And Whitney's like, yeah. He goes, um, I have this problem. Uh, I, was, I was using mouthwash, spit it out, and I accidentally swallowed some of it. And I looked at the, the bottle and it said not to swallow it. Am I going to be okay? And I said, no, no, <laughs> we're not. Uh, we should probably get you to the hospital. Uh, he also worried about, like, I think one time he'd accidentally uh, eaten some chapstick. I don't know how that happens accidentally, but that's the, the nature of this kid. Okay? Well, you can imagine how this kid responded when he saw this in Scripture, right? Ho! Daniel, I think I've done this. What is it? I'm not sure. 
but I'm pretty sure I've done it. So yeah, well, go to a different church. What does it mean? What does it mean to blaspheme? Blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, I told you to go to Matthew chapter 12 because Matthew kind of truncates some things we see in Luke 11 and Luke 12. But in Matthew chapter 12, remember there's this demon-oppressed man. We saw him in Luke 11. And he's brought to Jesus. And Jesus heals him. Everyone's amazed. But remember we saw this in Luke 11, verse 24. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Jesus responds to their poor response to his miracle and describes how he was able to do this. And then verse 28, he says, notice this, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? Now, so there have been several different theories about what this sin is. Some people said, well, this, this sin refers to claiming that Jesus is possessed by an unclean spirit, because that's something that happens in that, in that verse, that passage. Some have said, well, this is apostasy. This is a, a person who falls away from the faith, but that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in the context. Uh, some people say, well, this is referring to a person who rejects Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Well, again, that doesn't make a lot of sense in context here of Luke 12 or Matthew 12 or, or Mark 3 where this also occurs. What I believe this is referring to is a persistent and willful, continual rejection of the Holy Spirit's work of testifying to God the Son. In other words, what this sin means is that a person throughout the course of their life continues to reject the teaching, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's the Spirit's work here in Matthew chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit is, it's the Spirit's work that Jesus is saying they're not responding to rightly, and the Spirit's work is designed to exalt Christ. They see that. They have the ability to comprehend that, and they don't just doubt it, they outright deny it. They attribute the Spirit's work to Satan, and in so doing, reveal that their hearts are rejecting the Spirit's work. Brothers and sisters, it is a serious thing to fail to submit to the Holy Spirit. To live one's life knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, seeing the Spirit's testifying work to that reality and the lives of the people around you, and to continue to reject it. A person who continually and willfully refuses to submit to the Holy Spirit has committed a sin that will not be forgiven. It's a somber reality. Jesus concludes by telling the disciples, the, the people, that they should continue to trust and rely upon the Spirit. As you're brought into synagogues and rulers and authorities, you shouldn't be anxious and shouldn't worry about how you're going to defend yourself, but instead rely upon the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you what you ought to say. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not ever prepared to talk about God's Word or His truth. First Peter tells us just the opposite, right? That we should always be, or that we should be ready to defend our faith and know it. What it means is, as we're brought before people, we don't need to fear them because we can fear God and trust the Spirit's indwelling work within us to say what God would have us to say. Jesus here in verses 4 through 12 is not calling you to worship some vague deity, some spirit in the sky, some abstract concept of, of God that will be palatable to anyone. What Jesus is saying is, look, if you lack fear of God, if you have fear of man, it means your conception of who God is and his power and his majesty is weak. You need to understand that 
there is a triune God. And God the Father has the authority to cast you into hell. To fail to acknowledge God the Son as your Savior and your Lord as God means that you will not be confessed before the Father. And to fail to submit to the Holy Spirit's authoritative work is to blaspheme him, blaspheme him a sin that cannot be forgiven. The Trinity is an incredibly complicated doctrine. None of us can claim to understand it fully. But what we can say is, look, I'm not going to deny this truth. And this God that is a triune God is so intricate and beautiful and holy. How can I respond with anything but worship? Let me close with Psalm 29. And may this be the prayer of your heart, too, as you contemplate the triune God who's worthy of your praise and worship and adoration and, yes, fear. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. Father, that is the God that you are. Father God, you are a God whose voice causes us to tremble and shake as we think about your majesty and your glory and your honor. Father, we have no hope of being able to worship you apart from the righteousness that you provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we have no hope of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Father, cause us not to fear family, not to fear friends, not to fear acquaintances, co-workers, co-laborers. Cause us to fear and tremble at your name and to worship you alone. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.